0: Welcome to Home Based Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasedhope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, how are you going? Today we are tackling the conversation around homework. Do our kids actually need it and is it really doing them any favours? Well, some of us feel we have to do it to give our kids the best head start in life, a lot of us feel that it's just all too much and the stress just simply isn't worth it. So today we're going to be talking to a fabulous teacher who's based down in Adelaide and she's not afraid to speak up when it comes to ditching homework and replacing it with more time to relax, connect, move and play. Claire Crewe is an early childhood and inclusive education teacher who specialises in the brain body connection. She helps the children the system leaves behind, those with learning, attention, developmental and behavioural challenges. The message is simple, children need more movement and more play in the early years of life, and when we're able to deliver this, children begin to thrive. Welcome, Claire.
1: Hi, and Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on and finally get to chat about all things homework and play and movement and all the things that you are passionate about.
1: <laughs> it's such an important topic, I think, for all children, but especially those who have additional needs.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, well, let's kick start today by talking a little bit about your journey. So I'd love to rewind and start with a bit about your background and um, your journey to becoming really um, involved and looking at the whole child.
1: So, I'm an early childhood educator and I have been for 14 years. It's something that I had my eyes set on from a pretty young age, really, wanting to work in childcare or kindies or, or schools. Um, and I've always loved the role, but I think sometimes when you're in that position, you're really getting a close look at how well it's meeting the needs of some children, what you're doing, what, you know, I, I guess mainstream is offering, and how uh how poorly it's meeting the needs of other children and so that's certainly you know in those first few years of teaching when I got a particular interest in the area of inclusive education and realized that I wanted to learn a whole lot more than what I had in my first degree um, but I think that's also when the questioner in me was awoken a little bit as well So, I went on and got a a master's degree of special education um, and I was doing that part time over many, many years while I was teaching at the same time and then while I had young ones, uh, children of my own as well. Uh, And so, that gave me a lot more knowledge and skills in regards to catering to the whole child and every child, not just children who are sort of developmentally ready and keen for what we have on offer. And I think that's when I started to get a lot more into advocacy, you know, really seeing that in order to support children who do have different needs, as parents of these children, we really need to step up and be advocates for them. But also as educators, we need to really be trying different things out and questioning if what we're doing is really meeting the needs of all children. And if not, what can we do to change it?
0: Hmm. Mm, I love it. I love it and I love that you are so passionate about it because we really need passionate advocates like yourself um, to really be questioning, I suppose, what we're doing, um, you know, at school and if we're sort of heading in the right direction um, and not only focusing just on the academic side, really looking at that holistic perspective of looking at a child's wellbeing being. Um, because I think sometimes we do get caught so much in the academic side of things and whether our child's getting a good score on a test that everything else sort of um, fades away sometimes.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's not the way it should be because first and foremost, we've got to feel safe. And for a lot of our children in the classroom, that's not a space that they feel safe and secure. And unless we actually look at them as a whole child and embrace them as a whole human being, we're really not going to advance the academics anyway. You know, we've got to actually look at all the parts that make up them, support all of development because there's a lot of developmental stages that need to come in place before we layer in the academics anyway. So if we just focus too much on formal learning, we are really leaving a lot of children at a disadvantage.
0: Mm, Yeah. Now, you talk about three main ingredients that kids need to thrive, and I absolutely 110% believe in these ingredients, and particularly for kids on the spectrum, I think they need this. Um, can we talk about each of those key areas?
1: Yeah, so movement is one that I talk about and movement is something that often we just think of as the extra thing. You know, some children might be quite wriggly and need lots of movement. It might be something that children can do, you know, in an organized sport or recess and lunch. But actually, movement is so much more important than that in the early years of life. But also, if there's developmental challenges that remain, movement is essential for, For brain development, really, it's movement and brain development are so interconnected. So if we value, if we value brain development in that academic way, and all the other ways that shows up, we also need to value movement. So children have this drive to move, because that is how they learn. Then we have play. So play is, again, often seen as the stuff that gets done when children have finished their homework or at the end of the learning day. It's not often valued, but play is something that humans and animals have sort of innately embedded in us and it's how we develop the survival skills that we need for our life. So because, you know, humans obviously have, lots of different skills and things that we need in life, that period of play, that duration of play in our lives is needed well beyond the first five years. Play isn't something that should stop the moment a child starts school and enters the classroom life. It's something that really needs to continue the whole way through. And then the third one that I talk about is connection because to feel seen and to feel heard are qualities that we really need in our life no matter what our age but particularly for children it is what tells them that they are they're okay you know they are they are liked they are loved they are appreciated and this is especially key for children who don't necessarily fit in the box that we have prescribed for them they need to feel that you know We've got their back no matter what and even though they might challenge us and even though they might behave in ways that uh, we're not necessarily always okay with, um, they've got a support team behind them for the rest of their lives.
0: Mm, I love that. I love those three, movement, play and connection. Um, yeah, so firstly with movement, I think I totally agree. It's um, very important and it is something that, um sort of is used as a reinforcer or um a reward you know after kids do their homework then they can go out and jump on the trampoline um but often it's something that we need prior to that sit down tabletop activity so that they are ready to learn um and that they yeah uh, like you said it is that brain development um in the early stages of life, obviously, that's how the brain starts making all its neural connections is through, um, movement patterns. Um, and as they get older, yeah, it's something we tend to forget about and it's
1: not as important, but, um, it really is. Thank you for saying that so much more articulately than I did, Rhiannon. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, if that is a topic that interests people, um, heading back to your episode that you did, uh, with Angela Hanscom, that was just brilliant. And her book is amazing. And even just in that book, it's quite eye opening because she breaks down how many hours children of different ages need to be active each day. And it is above and beyond what we're told as a government recommendation.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, um, you know, movement develops obviously gross motor skills, hand eye coordination, but it also develops the skills I think that we don't tend to look at, which is like the social skills and turn taking and sharing and all those other little skills that it's really important. And if they don't have that opportunity, um, I suppose, for outdoor meaningful play, then they, they don't get that. Um, opportunity for developing other skills that they need, other life skills. Mm.
1: And I think it's also just important for coping with those day-to-day stressors because I know for me, for example, if I'm getting, you know, a bit overwhelmed by something, the best thing for me to do is to get outside and ideally, you know, go for a brisk walk. And for a lot of our children, you know, life can be quite overwhelming and quite stressful. And so to be able to actually physically you know, work out some of those stressors that that's really valuable as well mm, absolutely,
0: and connection um, so that was your third point, but yeah connection that is super important, I think for kids on the spectrum um because. Often this is an area that they um, have a lot of difficulty with. So, you know, it may be, you know, they're not making the eye contact. So parents feel like they're not connecting with their child or um, they may be nonverbal or not have um, really great communication skills. So really um, being able to join their world and getting on their level and becoming fascinated in whatever it is that that they are fascinated in and, and developing that connection with them is super important.
1: Yeah, and knowing that that connection, as you just touched on, it might look different to how you thought connecting with your child would look. You know, it might not necessarily be all of the touch and the affection and the cuddles if that's not what your child is wanting and is seeking it might not look like the eye contact you know you might not be having those words of affection shared very often but there will be a way that you can connect in with your child and so you kind of need to throw away the rule book and just be ready to do things in a way that suits you and your child
0: Mm. do you have any tips for that is there anything that you've found useful in terms of um, helping parents connect with their kids better
1: i think first it's the mindset of just letting go of how you thought things were meant to be um it's definitely a case of you know focusing on the present and focusing on the positive as opposed to just always getting bogged down in something that just happened that was a bit negative or filling your mind with Ideas and decisions about what's going to happen in their future, really just being in the present with them because they can feel that. Um, Being ready to love them in whatever way, shape, or form they present themselves. Um, But also, if you're wanting more practical ideas, I've recently discovered uh, the Marty Mayo approach and I'm finding that so valuable. I wish that I had that in my toolkit when I was working in a special education setting. Um, So, that's definitely something that is worth looking into. It's really uh there's four basic principles and it can get quite complex, but at a basic level it's really easy to understand. Um Let's just say what it was and called it's, again, sorry. What was it called? Mart- Marty Mayo. Okay. Yeah, it began in Holland with a lady called uh, Maria Arts and it evolved from her work with children with autism. Um, but since then, it's become quite mainstream across many countries, many different areas of life. So it is used a lot by educators in mainstream and special ed, but it's also used for working with elderly patients, for example, who have dementia. It's really, it's been dubbed the how-to of attachment. So it's things like, you know, following your child's lead, having a good face, having a good tone in your voice, uh, verbalising what you see your child doing and also attaching the motion emotions um, that you're feeling or that they're feeling wrapped in with that. Um, and I do have a a four-part uh, short podcast series on it if people want to look into that. But there's also the website which has heaps of information. I think it's martymayo.com.
0: Okay. Excellent. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. I haven't come across that.
1: No, neither had I. And it's just, it feels so warm and fuzzy and it really, really works. Okay. Excellent.
0: Alrighty. Let's, let's move on to homework. Um, so homework, obviously, for some families can be an absolute battlefield. Um, you know, it can cause major meltdowns. Kids can become super defiant um, and parents just feel like they're constantly nagging their kids, you know, at the end of a hard day of school to, um, you know, quickly... Um, you know, pack away their school bag and everything like that and then sit down and do their homework before they can have their free play. Um, So it becomes incredibly stressful and parents are getting burnt out. So I suppose what I want to start by asking is, um, is homework something that kids really need in their life?
1: No, they don't. As you've just described, it's not positive for the whole family, definitely not positive for the child, especially if it's a child who really all day long, has worked additionally hard just to be able to sit still and to focus and to to cope with the additional stimulation from a sensory point of view that's in the classroom or perhaps rules that they can't quite understand, all that kind of stuff. Homework isn't ideal for any children. It's taking too much time away from those positive three things that we just spoke about, movement, play mm-hmm. and connection. But also the research doesn't actually show that there are benefits Of homework, particularly in the primary years of school. So the small benefits that they've kind of linked in with homework, it's still a little questionable, but they start at about years 10, 11, and 12. So that upper secondary level. So you've got to go, you know, too much stress. It's removing those opportunities for my child to move, play, and have that quality time with me. And it also is really dubious, these positive benefits that I'm being told that it actually has
0: Mm. yeah that's interesting so you mentioned about the research that it's not really supporting um, kids in the younger years particularly primary Um, what's it saying is it saying that we should we shouldn't be doing any homework at all or does it give an amount of time maybe you know per week that we should be doing homework or just cut it all together
1: I guess I'm seeing it through the lens of let's just cut it all together. Um, But maybe if I share a few components of the research and then people can make up their own mind about it. Um, The homework research, it really taps into four different areas and the first is academic performance. And in a study back in 1998, so quite some time ago now, um, Cooper found out that there's no significant relationship between the amount of homework a student completes and their performance on tests and assessment tasks. And then a bit more recently, Horsley and Walker, they pretty much reviewed all of the existing uh, research around homework and student performance and found that there weren't any gains in junior primary or even in upper primary in most cases. And then in, in the middle middle years, I guess we're talking lower secondary, um, there was only like a very sort of mild hint that there's a connection there between the relationship with homework and academic performance. And then there's a bit more of a significant uh, connection there with homework and school performance at that senior high school level. But I also think that by senior high school level, children are more able to cope then and they've got more of an investment in that. That homework is more likely to be connected to assignments and actually getting their high school certificate. So to me, that makes much more sense than, you know, expecting a five-year-old to come home after a long, tiring day of school um, and doing more there. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a very small group academically who do benefit from homework that I do need to touch on. And they are the children who are already ahead academically and who love homework. (laughs) So, they are the only children that seem to come out on top who seem to actually benefit from homework. So, they're the ones who are already ahead academically and who are those who enjoy it. So they're the ones who are likely to want to do the homework anyway, even if you say that they don't have to. Um, but it's really important to note that it's, it's not helpful for children who are behind academically because I think sometimes there's this idea that if a child is ahead then they don't need the homework but if a child is behind it's the homework that's really going to make the difference to help them catch up to their peers and in actual fact I think that they're the children who homework is the most damaging for.
0: Mm, That's so interesting because I would have sort of come from that perspective thinking you know if they are behind you 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 know, as a parent myself, I'd want to spend the time after school trying to catch them up on the things that they're not doing so well in class.
1: Yeah, and I think that's when we have to bring it back to the start of the conversation in talking about the whole child. So, you know, sitting down and slugging over homework together, they're usually fried, especially children on the spectrum. They've worked so hard all day long and it might not look it, but they really are. There's a lot going on underneath the surface. And when they get home, I really feel like they need to decompress. They need to tap in for the first time that day probably with what they feel they need to do to Feel good in their skin and feel good about themselves. So it might just be, you know, laying on a beanbag and just really being a vegetable for a while. Or it might be running outside in the sun and, um, you know, in nature. It might be that they want to have, you know, some cuddles and read a book together. It might be that they want to play a board game. There's so many ways that it can show up and it's probably going to look different on every different day of the week. But I think that that. Is actually going to help the learning more than slugging away with homework because it's that recharge. It's that reboot. And I think in regards to children's mental health, it's really valuable too, because then they see if they don't like school, then they see that actually I've still got something good in my life each day. And they have that freedom to discover other things that aren't within that learning day that they are good at. You know, that they do have that passion for. It's not, I I think it's dangerous to send a message to children that it's all about academics because ultimately, once you have finished school, you kind of got to play the game until you're an adult. But then, once you do leave school, there are so many ways to be successful. And it's not necessarily going to university, it's not necessarily following an academic path. And as parents, I think we have a big role there in understanding that for ourselves because I think too many of us are hung up on the fact that a successful life does look like going to uni and getting a degree and getting a high income as opposed to going, do you know what? It might look different for my child and that's okay. You know, we need so many different roles and personalities and qualities in our society to make it work. And as we're finding out now, so many people are going to university and getting a degree and there's just not enough work there for them. So if your child chooses to and is driven to have that life, that's absolutely fine. But I think we need to also help them get to know themselves in these other less academic ways too.
0: Wow, that was so empowering. I loved that little snippet. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, I got goosebumps. Um, It's so true. It's so true. I loved it how you said... um, you know, if they're struggling at school and they're having a hard day and they're just dragging their feet around and then they come home and they've got to do more of that stuff that they're not good at and that they're struggling with, um, you know, what sort of, you know, how good is their life, you know, quality of life. But if they came home and, um, you know, it was that safe place where they could go and be themselves and, um, yeah, that, that just – yeah, really resonated with me. I think that's a really important message um, that we make home a place where we can build on their strengths and show them um, ways in which, you know, they can contribute and have a meaningful, positive experience.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the other areas that the research around homework actually taps into. So some of the studies actually look specifically at student wellbeing and probably the most significant one It's from Kuzma and Kennedy in 2002, and they found that there was a direct correlation found between how much time high school students spend on homework and their feelings of anger, depression, and anxiety. And so, while some people listening might say, well, my child's actually at primary school, I still think, you know, the studies particularly focused on high school students but I think the same can be true for children at that lower level of school especially if they have a high volume of homework or especially if the homework is just not speaking to them it's not engaging them it's too hard it's too boring it's just not what they want to be doing
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and certainly another area that the research looks at is that parent involvement and you know while you were saying that the thought of you know Supporting our child who might be behind with homework that that should you know we often think of that as being a helpful thing. Um, the research again really says that while parent involvement at school is valuable, you know whether that's going along to meetings, going along to assemblies, um, you know wanting to look at their schoolwork at home sometimes if you're someone who can't actually get into school very often because of work commitments or family commitments. Homework is not a positive way to get involved in, uh, in our children's learning lives. Uh, it has a high emotional cost such as increased pressure and tension in that parent-child relationship. So often it's interesting because often schools will say that homework is that bridge between school and home and that this is a way that you can get involved in your child's education, but the research is actually saying, yes, your child needs to feel like you're involved in their education, but homework is not the way.
0: Mm. Okay, so I've got a good question for you. (laughs) Um, If the research is saying that we shouldn't be doing homework or that it's not beneficial um, for academic performance, why on earth are we got all these high expectations on our kids to um, do lots of homework? Because I know my daughter started transition or grade prep um, this year and first week she already had homework. And it's simple stuff but, you know, for kids on their first week of first year of school, you know, it can be obviously overwhelming for some kids um, who are just getting into the routine of going to school. Um, But why is it then, if the studies aren't supporting it, why are we expecting um, kids to do homework?
1: I actually have no idea, Rhiannon. And then this is one of the things that really frustrates me because some of that research, you know, some of the research is quite new. You know, it's only a few years old, but some of it goes back to the 90s. So I don't really feel like this is new information. It's been out there a long time. Sometimes it takes a long time. Um, in different industries for the research to actually trickle through into what's seen as best practice. So, I think that's definitely the case for schools sometimes. And yet, you know, the STEM staff and inquiry-based practice and all these other things have trickled through very quickly. So, I'm not quite sure. I think that there's a real emotional attachment to homework. Um, for a lot of parents, you know, as much as I'm saying, say no to homework and you don't have to do it. There are parents who actually really like homework, even if their child doesn't like it. So, they do feel that that's a way that they can get involved or they do feel like, you know, that discipline is a good thing for their child that sets them up for the workforce later. Or they do just have that sense that, well, I had to do homework when I was at school, so they have to do it too. And I think for a lot of educators Uh, Some of them are really just setting homework, even though they don't believe in it, because it's a requirement that they support the policies of the school that they're employed by. And yet for other educators, sometimes they feel like homework is the only way that they can actually fit in everything within the curriculum. So they're really tapping into that after school time to make sure that they can tick off all their boxes, as opposed to as opposed to having a more laid back approach you know you can tick off all the boxes and say well we've i've covered all these things in the curriculum but if you've got children who are zombies they're just kind of empty vessels in the classroom not able to take on anything else because we're not looking at them holistically it's not knowledge that they're actually going to to take with them into the the following classroom the next year anyway
0: mm. Mm, absolutely. So if parents are wanting to adopt this sort of no homework approach, how do they go about it? Because I know – um You've said before that because I've listened you've got some podcasts on this as well on this topic so um, on the homework and you did say that um, every school has a no oh, they don't have a no homework policy they have mm-hmm. a home they have a homework policy. so how do parents get around it um, and approach this if there's a policy in place around doing homework?
1: Yeah, almost every school will have a homework policy, even if it's called something else like a home learning policy, it is still a homework policy. So the first thing that parents can do is actually access that policy and read it because I think that is really key in informing your approach. It kind of lets you know how hardcore they are with homework. Um, And for most public schools, they will have the homework policy on their website. Um, Some private schools do, not so many. But either way, if you can't find yours online, just going to the front office or if you're not at school physically very often, just, you know, phone them and ask for it to be sent home with your child. Um, And you don't have to get into a discussion at that point. You're just saying, I'd like a copy of the school's homework policy, please. And anyone who is involved in a school has the right to access any of the policies that are there. So that's pretty easy. I know, for example, that some policies, because in that podcast series you mentioned, I did examine a few different homework Um Policies And some will actually specify that, you know, homework is there as an option, but it's not mandatory. And that way you know that if your teacher at that school is saying it's mandatory, you can sort of point towards the policy to say actually at a school-based level this isn't something that we have to participate in. Other schools might have a pretty firm policy that will actually specify the consequences for children if that homework isn't done. And sadly, quite often that consequence is actually missing out on lunch play or some kind of playtime, which I'm completely not okay with at all. So I think the first step is just getting to know what the policy is and then from there the negotiations can begin.
0: Mm. And and how do you see that play out? Because I know you have had the conversation with um, some of your your daughter's um,
1: teachers. How does that conversation go down? It's interesting. It. it- Every year you don't quite know how it's going to go down. I've actually got three children. So um, my eldest is um, in year five this year. Then my son who's in the middle, he's uh, nine, so he's in year four. And then my youngest is in year one. So we've been doing this for quite a few years now, sort of from – reception for my eldest onwards I thought it would get more challenging in middle primary but actually some of the middle primary teachers have been more open to this than the junior primary teachers Mm -hmm. Um, quite often particularly if you've got a child who's just starting school um, most teachers are really okay with you just saying look they're really exhausted when they get home you know this just really isn't for us uh, with my son, in particular, in his first year of school, he had um, sensory processing disorder at the time, which is something that he doesn't actually um, have going on anymore as a result of you know the way we eat and the, the movement therapies and things like that that we've done to treat it holistically. But for him back then, he was able to function really well in the classroom during the day, which amazed me. But when he came home, it was just meltdown city. And so that was a really easy conversation to have just to say, look, like he's beyond it. You know, this is really, he's really demanding of us that we just have nurturing afternoons. He needs to move. He needs to play. He needs to snuggle. He just needs to have some freedom. Um, Then some of the other conversations we've had have been more challenging. So, yeah, a lot of teachers have been fine with it some have really questioned questioned us a lot and we've had more formal meetings with the leadership team as well but we're at a position at our current school now uh this is the second school that we've been at where they know our stance and we don't really have to renegotiate each year they sort of they know that we're not going to be doing it and um you know they're not imposing consequences for my children for not doing it. I think the best the best way to approach it is really just to initially word it word it from the teacher's point of view almost you know you don't want this to seem like an attack on the teacher or that you're not going to work in collaboration with them, so there's a really fine balancing act there, so I often sort of say you know, thank you for setting the homework. I know that, you know, you're wanting my child to succeed to their full potential this year. However, you know, I really feel that developmentally there's other things that I need to be doing after school to support my child and particularly, you know, if you do have a child with autism, you might be having additional appointments and things after school anyway or you might just really want that that time to go slow. Um yeah so really sort of spelling out what you will be doing in the afternoons instead and you know letting them know that this is really in line with what the research has to say as well so I don't I'm um, I'm not concerned that my child is going to be any worse off for it I actually think this is going to support them developmentally
0: Mm, Absolutely. And I think what you said there will resonate with so many of the mums that, you know, kids will keep it together when they're at school and when they get home and as soon as they're in the car, um, that meltdown can begin. It's just any little thing will tip them over the edge and it's all too much and they're in their safe space so they will Mm -hmm. uh, just completely fall apart.
1: Absolutely. Um, And and I always think that that's... That's harder in a way, Rhiannon, because I think – the educator doesn't have the same clues that that child isn't coping as when the behaviour and the meltdowns are at school. So, on the surface, it looks like, wow, you know, this child has that label and they might struggle in these ways, but actually, they're doing really well in the classroom. And so, then they're not seeing that there will be an issue with things like homework. It actually, you know, that mask the child is wearing is pretty firmly in place, but then at home with the unconditional love, it kind of comes off. So that's where that communication with the child's educators is so important because they see one version of your child and you see the other version and so they need to they need to be aware that that other version exists because sometimes if there's a triggering situation at school they won't notice the fallout you do. So you're the person who's got the best tabs on how classroom life is for them, really,
0: mm. yeah, so important, so important um, okay, so I might shift gears a little bit and and talk about what kids should be doing instead of homework, so I'd love to hear from you what you do with your kids after school. What does it look like?
1: yeah, I guess we've been doing this so long now that it's just it, it's really just like life is on the weekends or um. Or in school holidays, in that there's just freedom. I'm sure kids would love to hear that. <laughs> there's just there's just freedom. It, there's um, I'm I'm there and I'm available. But I'm not necessarily holding their hand and doing everything with them. So board games are quite often a feature of our after-school periods. Um, being outside definitely is. Um, sometimes my two younger ones tend to just naturally be outside, moving lots. My oldest is a bit of a, a bookworm, so she needs a bit of encouragement. But I find even if we just have our after-school snack outside, or I do a bit of gardening outside, that kind of you know lures them out um, because I really do value that movement and that play and that nature time. Um, Often it's a lot of reading, so we've never even done the readers and a lot of people get concerned that then a child won't learn how to read, but actually what what it has meant for us is that my children can read they can read well and they love to read because the focus was always in those early years of school on me reading to them and us enjoying stories together. And we continue to do that, but now they also have the skills to be reading novels themselves as well. Uh, one afternoon a week we have a couple of friends that come over. They just walk home from school with us um, and then their their parents pick them up uh, after you know, after they're done with the day of work. Um, So sometimes we have friends and things. We are pretty low-key when it comes to extracurricular activities. Um, There's only two of those that happen sort of at the end of the week or the weekend. Um, I really just want the after-school periods to be empty and full of whatever my children want to fill them with. So there's really no have-tos at all. Um, It is just them choosing what to do. And, yes, this has looked different, I guess, at different stages of life, you know, when my 10-year-old was five and I had, you know, um, a baby and I had a a very demanding three- and four-year-old as well, uh, I needed to be a lot more involved and I definitely know that um, some of you listening in Can't necessarily just let your kids go and do whatever without supervision. Uh, Certainly, we've spent quite a bit of time building up to that point. Uh, I think a key thing that I want to highlight is that it's not screen time. So, my children have screens on weekends in that they'll watch a movie um, on the weekend days, but they don't have access to iPads. And during the week, it's technology free because uh, I guess knowing what I know about brain development, And how addictive a lot of those games and educational apps, I'm using my little quotation marks there, are. (laughs) I
0: heard it. I heard
1: it. (laughs) Um, I know that there are way better things for them to be doing with their time, and they're not asking for it because. It's, it's just not part of their life. Um, and so I think sometimes teachers fear that no homework is just going to lead to more screen time. And I guess that's a slight concern I have for some families as well. And so I think that if you are adopting a no homework approach, you really need to bring in some firm um, boundaries around the screens as well, knowing that you are the adult and you get to make the decisions about how that's going to fly. And it can be very traumatic at the start because they, you know, a lot of our kids are addicted to these devices. A lot of us are addicted to these devices, but you've just got to stay with it for a few weeks and then your children will... Just naturally have more of a restored play drive they're going to be more creative in how they spend their time. they're going to be more imaginative and a key part of that too is that you need to detach from your own devices and be spending that time connecting with your child if that's what they're seeking.
0: Mm, yes, so important. I am um, when the girls were younger actually um. Tyler, you know, started loving certain TV programs and that. And um, I, I had to, our, our power actually went out for like four days, so we couldn't actually watch the TV for four days. Um, and it was a great transition into really reducing the amount of screen time um, because i just say, oh, no, the power's gone out. And um, for me, that was a great way. But, um, yeah, it can be trickier when there are older kids and, you um, They are. They are completely addicted and um, just consumed. It is all-consuming. And I suppose the thing that concerns me about um, the screen time is that um, you're only using two senses, really, aren't you? You're using your sight and you're using your hearing. Mm -hmm. You're not using any of your other senses. So, yeah, the kids sort of go a bit brain-dead. Um, yeah, so I totally agree with that point too, but it is difficult. Um, but it's just small steps every day, reducing the amount of time slowly. And then, you know, it could take a few months. Um, you know, it doesn't have to happen straight away, but if you know your sort of goal and and what you're working towards, it can make it easier. Um, if you do small steps every day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talked about screens only using two senses, but even in regards to vision, it's completely different looking at a flat two dimensional screen than it is engaging with the three dimensional world. So there's a lot more children who are struggling with uh, short sightedness these days than there used to be. And I think that that's one of the contributing factors. Probably also the fact that less children are crawling and getting that tummy time and things in infancy as well. And, you know, Some people don't actually want to reduce the screen time. You know, that just feels a bit too hard and that's okay. Um, Different things work for different families, but I definitely think that that time that has previously been spent doing homework needs to be something different as opposed to additional screen time. So that could just be that you, you know, you sit on the couch and you read together or it might be that you do a board game. So create a new ritual to replace what used to be the homework.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we head on over to the five rapid fire questions? I think we've sort of covered it all.
1: I think but was there anything? Yeah, I think we have covered it all. I think um probably the only other thing to say in regards to screen time or homework in general, the best thing you can do in order to feel confident in making a different decision is to read or listen or learn, you know. You need to go into these conversations with your family or with school feeling confident in this new decision that you've made. Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, empower yourself and I think knowledge is power and um, when you can use it, um yeah, it can be a great vehicle to get to where you want to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it gets easier with time as well. Like I used to be a really rubbish advocate for my own children, but there have been enough experiences now that I feel like I'm getting fiercer each year and I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All righty, cool. Well, let's head over to the five rapid fire questions. So number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today?
1: Say no to homework.
0: <laughs> yeah, love it. All right. Um, every kid will love you, Claire. I'm sure they do. <laughs> um, number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did?
1: Mm. That's a good one. And I think it's, I really feel like I get asked questions often but I'm getting asked questions by eager parents and eager teachers and I would love to be getting the questions from the politicians or from the education departments. It's, it's who I want to have that information, you know, those people higher up who perhaps mm-hmm. are better able to make changes at a system level.
0: Mm, yeah, that's right because it's really happening at a grassroots level that the parents are saying we're not coping and they're starting to make the change. But, yeah, that's great. Um, Number three, what book would you recommend all parents read?
1: I read a book a couple of years ago, I think a couple of years ago, called My Son's Not Rain Man by John Williams. And it is a dad's story of his son's development with autism. So, you know, the diagnosis and daily life and he's actually a, an english comedian as well so there were parts of the book where i was in tears and parts of the book where i was laughing out loud and it's just a really human and engaging read he's also got it on audible that he's read himself if you're more of a listener which you might be seeing as you're listening to this podcast um it was such a good read. I, I do have family members in my life with autism but not any of my own children and I think it just gave me a whole new layer of empathy uh, for what daily life is like for you guys.
0: Mm, I haven't read that so it's on my list I swear every um podcast I do it's a new book and it's a new book that I have to add to my list I know and then
1: finding the time to actually read them is really hard so maybe you might just want to listen into that one it's so good so good
0: okay awesome I will um what number four what is one of your unfinished bucket
1: list items publishing a book which is happening very very soon so that's a good thing yay (laughs) i think i've just been putting it off i kind of i wrote the it's been written for a while it's just kind of the final edit and actually getting it all designed but it's coming it's a book about tummy time for babies
0: excellent does it have a title yet tummy
1: time tactics
0: excellent okay we'll keep our eyes peeled and last question number five if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents what would it be
1: love your children as they are love them unconditionally because if they if they just absorb your love I think that they can go really really far in their lifetime
0: Mm, beautiful lovely way to finish the show um and if people wanted to find out more about you, can you tell us um, what the website is, if you've got any Facebook uh, or social media and, um, and your podcast as well?
1: Yeah, so Thriving Children is my business name. So uh, thrivingchildren.com.au is where you can find my website. And from there, there's links to social media and my podcast as well. But if you're just looking in iTunes at the moment, it's called the Thriving Children Podcast.
0: Excellent, and there are lots of great, um, lots of great podcasts on your show. It's fantastic. You've interviewed some people. You do some on your own, um, and they're they're shorter, aren't they? They're about twenty to thirty minutes usually.
1: Yeah, so usually about thirty. Yeah, yeah. And there's stuff on homework and stuff on Marty Mayo, and I'll need to get you on soon to do a bit of a theme on autism as well, Rhiannon.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. Um, Yeah, so so if you did want to delve into a little bit more homework, definitely check out the Thriving Children podcast because there's a few episodes on that. Um, So thank you so much, Claire. I love your thinking around the whole child approach and I love your passion. I love that you're okay with stepping outside the box and going against the grain a little bit compared to what other teachers are doing or what, you know, the system is telling them to do in terms of homework approach. Um, And I think you definitely will have won over many parents around the country after this chat. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful conversation.
1: You're welcome, Rianne, and it's been awesome speaking to you as well.
0: Alrighty, cheers. Thanks, Claire. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Home Based Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I've created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, These are printables that are available on on the website so you can access today finally if you love this fortnightly injection of information please subscribe to the podcast all you have to do is head to itunes and hit the subscribe button and every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview if you do like the show please jump on itunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys.